Hello, my name is Moriarty and this is part 11 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2013 shook up the gaming world and changed the way we think about top-selling games. Mobile games skyrocketed in popularity, with Candy Crush Saga and Puzzles and Dragons each raking in a mind-boggling $1.5 billion. This shift in sales figures and gaming habits signaled that mobile gaming was no longer a niche market, but a force to be reckoned with. The accessibility, convenience, and snackable nature of these games, combined with the sheer number of people carrying smartphones, opened up gaming to a much wider audience. In turn, this challenged the industry to rethink game design, monetization strategies, and the overall gaming experience. Enter also the Dragon. Chinese gaming companies like Tencent started making serious waves in the gaming world, competing with the established giants from the US and Japan. This newfound competition added a layer of dynamism to the industry, pushing developers to up their game, explore new markets, and consider collaborations to stay competitive. Esports, too, continued its meteoric rise, with the International 2013 Dota 2 Championship boasting record-breaking numbers and a staggering $40 million prize pool. This growing popularity further legitimized esports as a serious competitive scene and provided more opportunities for players, teams, and businesses businesses to invest and capitalize on this growing market. Amidst all this excitement, the 8th generation console was unveiled, promising to redefine the gaming experience. These shiny new machines sparked the imagination of gamers and developers alike. While video games have often been critiqued as inferior to film or literature when it comes to narrative engagement, The Last of Us was one of the few titles that made even the skeptics reconsider. The story of Joel and Ellie navigating a post-apocalyptic world was unflinching in its depiction of human vulnerability. Most games provide you with a veneer of invincibility. Here, every action, every bullet, every makeshift weapon was a desperate scrabble for survival. That desperation resonated on a deeply emotional level, bolstering the already well-crafted narrative. The story didn't just move you, it made you weigh your decisions, immerse yourself in your actions. Joel and Ellie felt like fully realized characters, not just pieces moving across a board. Where some games might place a diary or audio log to give you a snippet of life before the catastrophe, The Last of Us populated its world with haunting visuals of dilapidated buildings, crumbling freeways, and rooms that looked like people had just stepped out for a moment but never returned. The environment conveyed a constant low-grade sense of dread and loss reinforcing the game's themes in ways that were often more poignant than any dialogue could be. By avoiding explicit exposition, the game encouraged players to become active participants in the storytelling process, piecing together fragments to create a more vivid, personal narrative. The Last of Us challenged the traditional gaming binary of hero-villain or paragon-renegade choices. You weren't just picking dialogue options or making overt moral choices that would lead to alignment shifts or different endings. The game embedded its ethical quandaries in the gameplay and narrative so organically that sometimes you didn't even realize a moral crossroads was upon you until you were already past it. There are many arguments happening even still about whether Joel is a good or a bad person. This blurred line between gameplay and ethical choice-making deepened player engagement and opened up new pathways for storytelling that we're still exploring in the gaming industry today. GTA V has made more money than any movie ever released, making it arguably the largest single entertainment product in history. The financial success of GTA V had enormous implications for Rockstar Games. In the years that followed, the company's identity evolved significantly. No longer just a game developer, Rockstar became a caretaker of a living, breathing online world. The massive income generated from GTA V, especially its online component, meant that there was little financial incentive to rush another big release. Instead, they kept this behemoth afloat with constant updates, making the game feel perennially fresh. The sheer longevity of GTA V is nothing short of astounding, effectively staying up and popular for over a decade before any serious mention of GTA VI could surface. 
The phenomenon also changed the game for the broader industry. The success of GTA V as a live-service ultra-hit became a template, a formula to crack for other game companies. It was as if the floodgates opened and the industry scrambled to replicate this model. And while many tried, few genuinely succeeded, pointing to something unique about GTA V's formula that went beyond just being an open-world game. It wasn't just the breadth of the world, but the granularity, the attention to minute details. Whether you were exploring the Hollywood-like Vinewood, the arid countryside of Blaine County, or the urban sprawl of Los Santos, every location had its own heartbeat and character. Even the non-playable characters you'd encounter felt thoroughly designed, imbued with a degree of unpredictability that made interactions genuinely engaging. The satire in this game wasn't merely window dressing, it was an integrated part of the world through radio shows, internet browsing within the game, and ambient conversations. The game offered a critique of American life that was at times jarring, hilarious, and uncomfortable. We can't overlook how this contributed to the overall narrative depth and replayability of the game, offering players more to chew on than just the story missions and side quests. However, Rockstar's achievements with GTA 5 also revealed their compromises. The game's female characters lacked the depth and agency given to their male counterparts, and despite its satirical lens, the game sometimes risks perpetuating the very stereotypes it purports to critique. While the landscape was flooded with Call of Duties and Battlefields, Counter-Strike had been chugging along steadily for more than a decade. Yet this year, something seismic happened, something that transformed not just Counter-Strike, but set a precedent for online gaming economies everywhere. The arms race update introduced skins, and the rest, as they say, is history. You see, the beauty of Counter-Strike's game design is that it achieved a delicate equilibrium, blending strategy, skill, and teamwork into a competitively viable experience. However, that's not solely a matter of chance, it's meticulously calculated. The game's competitive nature has made it one of the top esports titles for years, and Valve ensured that each update considered the professional scene. There are no gimmicky systems like killstreaks. Every weapon is immediately available to every player, and so it's not your character in the game who gets better, it's you. You get more knowledge, better skills, and become a better player. And when you watch a pro game, you can go and play that exact same map with those exact same weapons and try out the cool new strategy you just saw. Counter-Strike is an outlier when compared to its competitors, especially in how it updates. The vast majority of modern shooters follow the annualized model, new year, new game. This might work well for short-term revenue streams, but it also fragments the player base, dividing the community among various titles, and forcing players to adapt to new mechanics and systems with each release. Counter-Strike took a different path. By updating slowly, but consistently over two decades, the game allowed players to master its mechanics deeply. When you can spend years honing your skills in the same game, it opens doors to professional careers that are far more stable than those offered by games that change every couple of months. In other words, the consistency and longevity of Counter-Strike's ecosystem offered a sandbox for expertise, and the players dug in. But let's circle back to the Arms Race update of 2013, which drew inspiration from a similar update in Team Fortress 2. Valve's decision to bring an economist on board wasn't merely about optimizing Counter-Strike. It was a fundamental shift in how we should understand the economy of a video game. Yanis Varoufakis, a seasoned economist who later served as Greece's finance minister, was hired to consult on the burgeoning economic systems within not just Counter-Strike, but also Steam's larger marketplace. The integration of a real-world economist into the gaming sphere was an acknowledgement of just how intricate and impactful virtual economies had become. Varoufakis' involvement signaled a shift from haphazard or purely cosmetic updates to a more nuanced, market-oriented approach. The in-game items like skins were suddenly not just pixels, they were assets with fluctuating values influenced by a multitude of factors such as scarcity, desirability, 
instability, and even geopolitical events. A new metagame was created where trading and collecting could be just as competitive as the first-person shooting Counter-Strike was known for. The virtual economy had genuine financial implications for players, and that's a remarkable transformation. Going from an ecosystem where in-game items had little external value to one where a skin could pay for a car, a house, or even serve as an investment. Today, some skins sell for upwards of $250,000. At the time, this update perfectly paralleled the rising tide of microtransactions and the concept of games as a service, effectively turning Counter-Strike into a pioneer yet again. And while the notion of skins might seem superficial, it's crucial to realize the psychological impact they had. They made the game more personalized, adding an extra layer of attachment. Each skin, whether it was a token for a personal milestone or a memorabilia piece from a significant esports event, served as an emotional and monetary investment in the game, tightening the loop of engagement. The mere concept of a sandbox game was nothing new by the time Minecraft was released in 2009. Games like Grand Theft Auto had already provided players with a playground of sorts to express themselves, but Minecraft took this concept and stripped it down to its core. With its block-based building mechanics, it wasn't just a sandbox, it was an untouched beach, a bare canvas, devoid of instructions, and limited only by one's imagination. The blocky, procedurally generated worlds were revolutionary not just for their graphical fidelity, but for the emphasis on the player's role as a creator. The genius of Minecraft is that it's not prescriptive. It simply provides a set of tools and says, go build. This kind of hands-off approach was not only refreshing, but fundamentally reoriented how we think about video games as creative platforms. And by 2013, this quality had ignited imaginations around the world, from elementary school classrooms to professional architects' offices. Minecraft's cultural permeation was so profound that it became a tool for education, with educators employing the game to teach everything from basic programming to lessons in teamwork and cooperation. But amid all this discussion of the creative aspects, something that's been overlooked is the game's achievement system. Yes, it might seem like an afterthought, but it's actually critical to the early player's experience. It offers a gentle learning curve in an otherwise overwhelming experience. Achievements like getting wood or time to mine aren't just cute names, they offer implicit guidance, showing players how to interact with the world around them, thereby scaffolding a learning experience that doesn't require a tutorial or a guidebook. It's a delicate, intelligent way of introducing game mechanics, which is something we don't talk about enough. Another aspect that's remarkable about Minecraft's impact is its contribution to the popularization of early access models in game development. The game had been accessible in its alpha and beta forms long before its official release, offering players a chance to contribute to the game's development by testing features and providing feedback. This formed a symbiotic relationship between developers and the community, helping both parties. The developers benefited from the community's insights, and the community got a game that reflected their desires and expectations. Over the years, this relationship had grown to involve millions of players globally, setting a precedent for how games could be developed in a more open and community-focused way. Minecraft was well on its way to becoming one of the best-selling games of all time, but it wasn't just about sales numbers. It had already become a social phenomenon, a symbol of a generational shift in how we perceive the medium of video games. Its cross-platform availability further embedded it into the zeitgeist, making it accessible to almost anyone with a computer or a console, and thus engraving its status as a cultural touchstone. The reimagined Lara Croft was a far cry from the somewhat objectified figure of the 90s. The game introduced us to a younger, less experienced Lara, thrown into the deep end in a fight for survival. You weren't just navigating treacherous environments, you were engaged in an intimate character study, witnessing Lara's transformation into the adventurer we know today. Cinematic might sound like an overused term in the industry, but in Tomb Raider's case, it was more than apt. The game used 
environment storytelling, meticulously detailed set pieces, and fluid action sequences to offer a movie-like experience that was seamless, yet gameplay-centric. However, the cinematic quality also served as a double-edged sword, ironically, given the franchise's Hollywood connections. With games like Uncharted delivering a similar experience, some felt Tomb Raider had become derivative, losing a bit of its unique charm in its quest to modernize. Perhaps we should delve into the Tomb Raider reboot's somewhat complicated legacy. It was also haunted by a few strategic missteps and the specter of its competition. The decision to make Rise of the Tomb Raider, the sequel, a timed exclusive for Microsoft's Xbox was a severe miscalculation. This choice limited the game's accessibility, thereby cutting off a significant portion of the PlayStation and PC audience that might have otherwise embraced it. Meanwhile, the Uncharted series was becoming a behemoth that many saw as Tomb Raider 2.0. Similar thrills, but more polished and ultimately more loved. The exclusivity deal and the comparisons with Uncharted compounded to stall the reboot trilogy's momentum, leaving the franchise in a surprisingly lackluster position despite its initial critical acclaim. Tomb Raider games dating back to the original were lauded for their puzzles. However, the reboot didn't just carry on the tradition, it enhanced it. The puzzles were cleverly integrated into the story, each serving as a metaphorical stepping stone for Lara's character development. Yet because of the series' other challenges and competitors, this nuanced design aspect often gets overshadowed, failing to get the praise it genuinely deserves. Earthbound, or Mother 2 as it's known in Japan, stands as one of those peculiar instances in video game history where a commercial blip evolves into a cultural phenomenon. Nestled among the influences for many games, it is a title that on paper failed in nearly every metric at its outset, but today enjoys a near mythical status. For context, the game originally came with a price tag of $69.95, the equivalent today of $140. A scratch-and-sniff gimmick in Nintendo Power Magazine that was so strong that it would stink up your entire house with the smell of farts and stale pizza and gross-out humor in all its advertising, focusing on burps, boogers, and poo that didn't match the tone of the game at all. This marketing misfire turned into what was colloquially called the game that stunk up Nintendo Power. 140,000 copies sold in the first year doesn't exactly spell success, especially in a 1990s gaming market that was growing exponentially. But Earthbound's legacy is an anomaly, and this is where things get intellectually juicy. The game's belated success is indicative of a seismic shift in the industry, from corporate dictate to grassroots advocacy. The fans, YouTubers, and retro aficionados were the catalyst for its eventual release on the Wii U Virtual Console, where it became a best seller. This people-driven resurrection was almost foreshadowing the Kickstarter trends and consumer influence that was also becoming prevalent. However, the game's poor American reception had long-term ramifications for Nintendo's marketing strategies. The company became notoriously hesitant to put advertising dollars behind lesser-known titles, or, in the case of Mother 3, to release them in the States at all. The experience of Earthbound arguably made Nintendo more conservative, even as the industry evolved toward more diversified portfolios and indie releases. The seldom-discussed yet strikingly influential aspect of Earthbound is the nuanced approach it took to narrative. This was a game that tackled themes of friendship, homesickness, and even existential despair, wrapped up in a seemingly childlike exterior. While other JRPGs delved into mythological epics or dystopian futures, Earthbound remained tethered to the mundanity of everyday life albeit through a surreal lens. This narrative technique would later influence a range of titles from Undertale to Life is Strange, but this contribution often goes unnoticed, overshadowed by the game's commercial trajectory or its influential pixel art. Bioshock Infinite was initially heralded as an intellectual marvel. It introduced players to Columbia, a city floating in the sky. 
A dazzling technological feat on the surface, but roiling with political discontent and racial tension underneath. Players navigated this complex universe as Booker DeWitt, with the enigmatic Elizabeth as a key companion, her AI-driven behaviors adding richness to the gameplay and the story alike. The storyline seemed praiseworthy. Over the years, however, a kind of revisionism has occurred. Critics and gamers alike have started to view its political commentary as less insightful labeling it as rather 101-level stuff. But that shouldn't entirely discredit its narrative ambitions. Bioshock Infinite wrestled with themes of American exceptionalism and racial segregation, topics which were resurging in the American discourse around the time the game was released. While its narrative might not hold the same sheen of profundity it initially did, its approach to storytelling through environmental clues and ancillary materials like audio logs reshaped the way many subsequent games would tell their stories. Ubisoft's handling of Rayman Legends exemplifies the peculiar dichotomy in the corporate treatment of high-quality franchises. Here, we had a game bursting with creativity, featuring mesmerizing visuals and inventive gameplay mechanics that breathed fresh life into a flagging franchise. Unlike Ubisoft's predilection for open-world sagas, this was a tight, purposeful game that felt complete. The game promoted an inclusive form of co-op where players of varied skill levels can genuinely collaborate without feeling like one was carrying the other. Despite its critical acclaim, Rayman Legends fell by the corporate wayside. Ubisoft's apparent sidelining of the game, despite its quality, speaks to a wider industry trend, a shift away from games as artistic endeavors and towards games as mere content delivery platforms. Ubisoft seemed to pivot its focus to more financially lucrative ventures, thereby reflecting a broader industry trend of sidelining ingenuity in favor of marketability. Papers, Please, an indie title that could be considered the antithesis of a big-budget spectacle, struck a chord with its somber take on immigration and control. Beyond its pixelated graphics, the game featured a unique bureaucracy simulation that was engrossing but also anxiety-inducing. It embodied the ethos of the burgeoning indie scene, where developers took risks that major studios would or could not take. What's forgotten is how it not only ushered a wave of indie games into the spot, Line, but it also inspired a whole subgenre of titles focusing on moral choices and mundane tasks, proving that a compelling experience isn't solely the domain of AAA titles. A resurgence in lesser-known franchises also materialized, epitomized by the revival of the Shantae series. Shantae's return on the 3DS Virtual Console didn't just breathe life into a dormant franchise, it set a precedent for the possibilities of what a Virtual Console could do for game preservation and franchise revitalization. Shantae's vibrant art style and intricate level design made players and critics alike recognize way-forward technologies as a serious player in the industry, and its re-release serves as a testament to how the right platform at the right time can turn a nearly forgotten title into a cult classic. Halo Spartan Assault deserves a mention, though perhaps not for reasons that do it many favors. Landing on Windows Phone first was a commercial misstep given the platform's meager market share. However, what's most worth examining is its role as a cautionary tale. It showcased how a storied franchise could easily lose its way by entering genres and platforms that neither suit the series nor its audience. The game's obscurity today serves as a cautionary foot Note, almost like a hidden lesson about franchise management and the risks of brand dilution. 343 Industries, the caretakers of Halo, were clearly using the brand recognition to sell what was otherwise an uninspiring game. They simply slapped their names on the box. Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch, served as a cultural bridge, introducing Western audiences to Studio Ghibli aesthetics and storytelling while simultaneously resuscitating the then-languishing JRPG genre. 
The game's use of familiar yet richly developed turn-based mechanics wrapped in a Studio Ghibli art style almost functioned as a cultural handshake between Eastern and Western gaming philosophies. One underappreciated aspect of the game was its implementation of an AI-controlled companion system that encouraged players to think beyond their own character, thus elevating the standard turn-based combat into a multi-dimensional strategic endeavor. 2014. Gone are the days when a billion-dollar valuation was considered impressive. With an $82 billion market value, gaming had become a global cultural phenomenon, attracting new players who are adapting and redefining what it means to be a gamer. China emerged as the second-largest gaming economy, surpassing Europe and Japan, and nipping at the heels of the United States. This rapid ascent signaled the diversification of the gaming industry, opening up new markets and opportunities while increasing the competition between regions. Nintendo remained a force to be reckoned with, launching the new 3DS and Amiibo to keep fans engaged and excited. These mid-generation upgrades showcased the company's commitment to innovation, further cementing their position as a key player in the industry. But it wasn't just the usual suspects making waves. In the realm of indie gaming, a quirky title known as Octodad was making a splash, effectively creating a new genre, the physics game. Jackbox Games released the first of their party packs, marking a significant moment in social gaming. Amazon and Facebook made significant strides, ensuring their stake in the lucrative gaming market. Amazon acquisition of Twitch catapulted them into the realm of live streaming, while Facebook's purchase of Oculus solidified their investment in the future of VR gaming. These tech giants entering the gaming sphere brought new resources, perspectives, and strategies, ultimately pushing the industry to evolve and adapt. However, as gaming transitioned towards the mainstream, it also underwent a process of political and ideological polarization. A significant manifestation of this is Gamergate, a moment that sparked enduring debates and left a lasting mark on the gaming community. This shift in gaming's culture is a reflection of broader societal polarization, catalyzing debates around inclusivity, representation, and the intersection of politics and the gaming world. Considering the stark divisions surrounding these topics, any omission in discourse might inadvertently incite a wave of comments on this very long video, mirroring the unrelenting and persistent attention that these subjects invariably attract. As we reflect on this whirlwind of a year, how has China's rise as a gaming superpower shaped the global market and gaming culture? What long-lasting effects have Nintendo's innovations and the entrance of tech giants like Amazon and Facebook had on the industry? And how has the polarization and politicization of gaming influenced the way we perceive and discuss games and gaming culture? Hearthstone did something incredibly savvy. It piggybacked on the lore and characters from World of Warcraft. Blizzard already had a rabid fanbase deeply invested in the world, and by leveraging that universe, they were able to sidestep a major issue that plagues many collectible card games, the initial buy-in from players. You see, players were already familiar with the likes of Jaina Proudmoore or Thrall, so the game felt welcoming, even to those who might have been card game Neophytes. With 10 million users in its first year and a staggering 1 million during its beta, Hearthstone became a phenomenon that was impossible to ignore. A lot of collectible card games, digital or physical, tend to overwhelm new players with complex rules, long manuals, or intricate mechanics that require deep knowledge and strategy. Hearthstone, however, simplified this dramatically. Within 30 minutes, you could understand the core mechanics of the game. By lowering the entry barriers, Blizzard made an implicit statement. This game is for everyone, not just the hardcore card game enthusiasts. However, accessibility didn't mean a lack of depth. The more you dug into Hearthstone, the more you realized the intricacies involved. Each card wasn't just a static image with some stats, they had unique mechanics that could dramatically alter the state of play. Spells, traps, and hero powers all interacted in complex ways, allowing for a depth of strategy that 
made the game endlessly replayable. Let's not forget the RNG factor, the randomness that could sometimes decide games. While it might seem controversial to some, this randomness made each game feel like a new puzzle to solve, keeping the gameplay experience fresh and leading to some unforgettable, jaw-dropping moments. Dark Souls 2 is an enigma in the Soulsborne series, a phenomenon that thrives in the paradox of its existence. On the surface, this is a game that scored higher with critics compared to its iconic predecessor and the third installment, yet often lands at the bottom of fans' lists. So let's address the paradox. The game arrived riding on the hype of the original Dark Souls, a title that had redefined difficulty and complexity in modern gaming. Players expected a sequel that would expand on those labyrinthine worlds, brutal bosses, and intricate combat mechanics. Instead, Dark Souls 2 delivered something that felt distinctly different. Yes, it was brutal, yes, it was complex, but it was also experimental in a way that neither of the other games in the series were. Take the healing system, for example. The Estus Flask from the original Dark Souls was a staple, something you could always rely on to keep you in the fight. But Dark Souls 2 introduced life gems, consumables that added a dynamic layer to the gameplay. Rather than just finding a quiet corner to chug your Estus, you now had to be tactical about which type of healing item to use, making the gameplay feel even more like a series of strategic decisions. This change was polarizing, yes, but it gave Dark Souls to its unique flavor. The level design took a different tack as well. While Dark Souls focused on a seamless, interconnected world, Dark Souls 2 aimed for more disparate, distinct areas. Fans criticized this approach, arguing that it lacked the organic feel of the original, but what's often glossed over is that this very disjointedness imbued the game with an unsettling, dreamlike atmosphere, often feeling like an endless series of disconnected nightmares. It's a design choice that evoked an emotional response, whether good or bad, and not just a navigation one. And then there's the story, or the way Dark Souls 2 seemed to exist somewhat adrift of the narrative arcs that bound the first and third games. It's not that Dark Souls 2 didn't contribute to the lore, rather it offered a different perspective, almost like an apocryphal text in a religious canon. It didn't tie up neatly with its siblings, and that seemed to make fans uncomfortable. But in its refusal to conform, it presented lore enthusiasts with more interpretive freedom, encouraging players to dig deeper into its fragmented narrative elements. Dark Souls 2 is in this time capsule primarily because of the critical praise it got as a tale-on effect for being a sequel to Dark Souls, instead of being incredible itself. Dragon Age Inquisition was a tapestry of diverse terrains, from rugged coastlines to arid deserts, each with its own ecosystem and indigenous challenges. This wasn't merely aesthetic, it was an invitation to tactical play. For example, in the Hinterlands, your movements and decisions could affect the local political power structure, transforming the experience not just for you, but for NPCs inhabiting that space. The open world wasn't just open in the traditional sense, it was responsive and alive, much in the vein of what gamers were anticipating with the burgeoning capabilities of new generation consoles. The world building moved beyond static NPCs and rote fetch quests to create an ecology that players could affect in palpable ways. Of course, no discussion of a Bioware title is complete without diving into character development and narrative. Dragon Age Inquisition took what previous games did and amplified it through a unique war table system and dialogue choices that had ramifications rippling through the game's political landscape. Conversations were not merely a means to an end, but became dynamic pieces in an ever-changing chessboard of alliances and enmities. Consider the character of Iron Bull, whose personal quest encapsulates this sense of nuance. Iron Bull struggles with his dual identity as a Ben Hazreth spy and as a mercenary leader, and the choices you make determine which aspect of him ultimately triumphs. This was more than than just a branching narrative, it was an exploration of identity, allegiance, and the complexities of moral choices. Themes that resonated deeply in a landscape increasingly invested in the ethics of politics and war. But one influential aspect that often goes overlooked is the game's crafting system, which wasn't merely tacked on, but woven into the fabric of your adventure. Each piece of armor you create, each potion you mix, influences your ability to negotiate the game's social and 
physical battles. For instance, crafting an armor set with a high magical resistance might tip the scales in a challenging fight against a magical foe, but it could also serve to impress a particular character or faction in the game, thereby affecting the narrative in subtle ways. This holistic integration of crafting into both gameplay and storytelling was ahead of its time and represented a movement towards more integrated, player-driven experiences that would define the ensuing years. This was a game that encapsulated that ethos fully, offering a multifaceted experience that satisfied on mechanical, narrative, and emotional levels. Xenoblade Chronicles, released for the Wii in 2010 and later finding its way to North America in 2012, occupies a pivotal place in gaming history that might not be immediately obvious. This JRPG by Monolith Soft, originally deemed too niche for a Western audience, turned out to be a watershed moment for several facets of the industry. One aspect that strikes me about Xenoblade Chronicles is the phenomenon of Operation Rainfall. This was a fan-led campaign that basically pressured Nintendo into localizing the game for North American audiences. It's a marvelous example of fan engagement affecting executive decisions at a corporate level. We've seen similar movements, but rarely with such a tangible outcome. It's not just about the game being released in a new territory, it's about the assertion that there's an audience hungry for more complex, narrative-driven games, essentially pushing against the grain of what big companies thought would be successful. This set a precedent for more fan-driven campaigns, and trust me, executives started to listen more closely to what the fans actually wanted after this. But let's not gloss over the fact that Shulk was included in Super Smash Bros. Now, this might seem like simple fan service on the surface, but think about it. A character from a game that had to be crowbarred into a North American release through fan campaigns is now rubbing shoulders with the likes of Mario and Link. It's almost a Cinderella story for the ages. The inclusion of Shulk did two things. It validated the Operation Rainfall campaign, saying, yes, your voices matter, and it introduced a whole new cohort of players to the Xenoblade universe. Xenoblade Chronicles initially seemed like an outlier in the grand Nintendo schema, hailing from a company known more for its high-fidelity JRPGs than the traditional platformers and action games that Nintendo popularized. But what's fascinating is how much Xenoblade Chronicles influenced one of Nintendo's crown jewels, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, a title often cited as the pinnacle of open-world game design. Xenoblade wasn't just a precursor to Breath of the Wild, it served as a blueprint, an incubator of ideas that were adopted and refined. Monolith Soft's work on Xenoblade Chronicles offered Nintendo a lens through which they could view open-world design, dynamic ecosystems, variable weather conditions, and non-linear gameplay. Xenoblade Chronicles demonstrated that an open world could be more than just a vast playground, it could be an intricately layered, dynamically evolving ecosystem that actively enhances storytelling and gameplay. The game proved that large-scale environments didn't have to be at odds with complex character-driven narratives. In many ways, Xenoblade Chronicles served as a proof of concept for Nintendo, showcasing how expansive worlds can actually deepen engagement with game mechanics and storylines. Nintendo recognized that Monolith had the expertise to create rich, living worlds and sought to integrate that into their Zelda franchise. This collaboration was so integral that it's safe to say that without Xenoblade Chronicles, we would not have seen the open-world marvel that is Breath of the Wild. We'd be staring at a more linear, constrained Zelda game, perhaps another iteration similar to Skyward Sword. Monolith Soft was so instrumental to Breath of the Wild that it even created wrinkles in Xenoblade Chronicle 2's development. The importance of Breath of the Wild to Nintendo was paramount. It needed to launch with the Switch to provide the new console with an iconic title that could drive sales. As a result, Chronicles 2 was put on a back burner. The game's art direction took an unexpected turn as Monolith Soft had to outsource character design to manga artists. This action led to a 
noticeable shift in the game's aesthetic, including characters with exaggerated features. This deviation was a byproduct of Monolith Soft having to juggle resources, as their key personnel were tied up with Breath of the Wild. It's a reminder that every design choice has a backstory, and in this case, it was deeply tied to the symbiotic relationship between Monolith Soft and Nintendo. And then, Chronicles 3D was announced alongside the new Nintendo 3DS. It was one of only two games, the other being Minecraft, announced to demonstrate the capabilities of the new system. Think about the magnitude of that decision. Xenoblade Chronicles, a game initially ignored for Western release, became a flagship title for a new system release. This was no longer just a game that was lucky to get a Western release, it was a title Nintendo believed could stand shoulder to shoulder with a cultural phenomenon like Minecraft, deserving a re-release to reach a wider audience. The inclusion of Shulk in Super Smash Bros. and the re-release of Xenoblade Chronicles should not be seen as isolated incidents, but rather as parts of a larger narrative. Shulk's inclusion in one of Nintendo's flagship titles gave Xenoblade Chronicles a new surge of mainstream attention. This wasn't a mere nod to fans, but a strategic move to elevate the game's profile. The consequent re-release strategy, which saw Xenoblade Chronicles share space with a heavyweight like Metroid Prime on the Wii U, suggests Nintendo's revised assessment of the game's market value and cultural significance. Piecing all these events together paints a compelling picture. Xenoblade Chronicles is not just an influential game in its own right, but it also acted as a catalytic agent that fundamentally influenced one of the most important video game releases of the decade. Alien Isolation stands as a pinnacle of the survival horror genre and serves as an exquisite revival of the tension and atmosphere from the original 1979 Alien film. Its timing couldn't have been more poignant. When the gaming industry was noticeably veering towards a future of multiplayer-centric titles and microtransactions, here was a game that thrived on solitary dread, enveloping you in a persistently hostile environment where every second counted. The developers took meticulous care to recreate the gritty, lo-fi tech aesthetic of the late 70s, the era when Ridley Scott's original film was created. The developers took meticulous care to recreate the gritty, lo-fi tech aesthetic of the late 70s, the era when Ridley Scott's original film was conceived. Called retrofuturism, this was a period when science fiction depicted space as a grimy, industrial place of work, rather than the pristine labs and clean corridors you might see in, say, Star Trek. Right down to the last analog dial and CRT screen on the Sevastopol space station, the game committed to this vision. This meticulous attention to detail not only rendered a more immersive experience, but also effectively transported players back in time. When high-fidelity graphics and modern realism were becoming the norm, Alien Isolation dared to embrace the retrofuturist aesthetic, making a compelling argument for stylistic authenticity over brute technical prowess. Unlike many survival horror games where enemy movements can be predicted or memorized, the xenomorph in Alien in isolation had an AI that was designed to adapt and learn from the player's actions. You couldn't just game this system. If you hid in lockers too often, the xenomorph would start to catch on. If you made too much noise, you would pay for it and swiftly. This dynamic relationship between player behavior and AI response gave gamers something they were starting to lose in an age of scripted encounters and predictable enemies, a sense of unknowable dread. It reminded us that the technology driving our experiences could still surprise us, could still emulate some level of organic unpredictability, even as we had started to feel like we'd seen it all. The game leverages audio cues not just as atmosphere, but as an essential gameplay mechanic. Footsteps breathing, the creaking of the station, all served as vital information for the player. The sound wasn't merely about creating ambiance. It was an essential layer of the gameplay that you had to master to survive. This facet of the game subtly underscored the limitations of relying solely on visual cues in other titles, and added yet another layer of realism to an experience that demanded all your senses be alert.
Shadow of Mordor distinguished itself with a unique approach to storytelling through its groundbreaking nemesis system. This wasn't just a gimmick or a peripheral feature, it formed the very backbone of the game. It made every player's experience unique by creating a dynamic hierarchy among the orc chieftains you would fight. Defeat one and another would take its place, often with personalized dialogue that remembered past interactions. This wasn't just a randomly generated sequence, the game actually evolved in response to your actions. Even if you were killed by a grunt, that same orc would remember you and potentially get promoted, turning the tables on traditional game design where enemies are usually forgettable. 2014 saw AI as a hot topic in the industry, but often confined to the realm of making enemies smarter or more reactive. Monolith took it a step further. The AI in Shadow of Mordor didn't just adapt to your fighting style, it integrated itself into the narrative. In doing so, it blurred the lines between story and gameplay, making them two sides of the same coin, a trend we've seen gain more traction over the years. Something that has lost focus over the years is the notion of copyright and patent trolling. Monolith Productions patented the Nemesis system, sparking heated debates about the ethics and ramifications of limiting such innovation to one company. This had a wider implication for the industry. How much of a gameplay mechanic can you patent before you start stifling innovation as a whole? While it didn't start this conversation, it certainly brought it into sharp focus, reminding us that the realms of creativity and intellectual property can often clash in problematic ways. The debates surrounding the game's patented mechanics serve as a vital case study in the ongoing dialogues about copyright, creativity, and the collective responsibility of the gaming community. One of the most riveting aspects of Shovel Knight was its aesthetic fidelity to 8-bit games. Now, the term pixel art gets tossed around a lot these days, often as an umbrella term for any game that adopts a retro-visual style. But Shovel Knight did more than just borrow a vintage look. The development team dissected the art of older games, understanding the color schemes, the sprite dimensions, and even the limitations those earlier game designers had to work with. It's easy to forget that the 8-bit aesthetic of games in the 80s and 90s wasn't initially a stylistic choice, but a constraint. Shovel Knight turned that constraint into a form of expression, and it did so in a manner that resonated not just with those who were nostalgic for the 8-bit era, but also a new generation of gamers. The aesthetic choices weren't just about invoking nostalgia, they were about setting a mood, a tone, and even the pace of gameplay. Every pixel seemed purposeful. And in an era where streamlined too often means simplified, Shovel Knight came out swinging, quite literally with a shovel. This wasn't merely a gimmick, it was a tool that integrated combat, puzzle solving, and platforming. It added complexity and richness to what might seem on the surface to be a very straightforward game. This well-designed gameplay loop turned what could have been a mere throwback title into a modern classic, proving that retro gaming mechanics could still be relevant and challenging, pushing the player to think creatively within the confines of a 2D space. Shovel Knight caught attention for a reason that isn't discussed as much as it should be, the rise of indie game crowdfunding. This was in the thick of the Kickstarter era for video games. Titles like Shovel Knight not only validated crowdfunding as a viable development route, but also set the standard for what backers should expect from a crowdfunded project. Its success was a vindication of direct consumer-to-creator relationships circumventing traditional publishing gatekeepers. As the gaming community eagerly anticipated the release of Halo the Master Chief Collection, expectations were sky-high. The promise of revisiting the iconic Halo series with all its remastered glory on the next-gen console was tantalizing, but upon its release the reality was a stark contrast to the dream. The Halo series had always been a beacon of excellence in the gaming world. Its rich lore, revolutionary gameplay, and memorable characters had set standards in the industry. So when the Master Chief Collection was announced, it was seen as more than just a game, it was a tribute, a celebration of a legacy. But as players booted up the game, excitement quickly turned to frustration. The launch was, to put it bluntly, a disaster. 
Multiplayer maps, a core component of the Halo experience, were riddled with glitches and bugs. Matchmaking, the very essence of online play, was broken. Players found themselves waiting in endless queues, only to be dropped or paired in uneven teams. The community was in an uproar, and the backlash was palpable. This wasn't the Halo they knew and loved. This was a shadow of its former self. 343 Industries, the new torchbearers of the Halo legacy, faced a daunting task. They had to address the issues, placate a disgruntled fan base, and restore faith in the series. And to their credit, they took ownership. They acknowledged the problems, issued apologies, and worked tirelessly to fix the game. It was a humbling experience, a reminder that even giants can falter. Bungie, having basked in the glory of their monumental Halo series, stood at a defining juncture in their journey as a game development company. With Halo now in their rear view, they geared up to manifest a new, even more ambitious vision destiny. But to bring this dream to fruition, Bungie had to overcome a multitude of hurdles, not the least of which was the enormous cost of development. The initial vision for Destiny was ambitious, to say the least. The plan was to create an expansive online universe that would evolve over a decade, blending FPS mechanics with MMO-style social and progression systems. This shared world shooter concept was pioneering, but it also posed numerous developmental challenges. One of the initial challenges for Bungie was to transition from being a single console developer for Microsoft to creating a game that spanned multiple platforms, including PlayStation. This transition was a significant leap, requiring new tools, expertise, and development strategies. The fiscal reality of developing a game like Destiny was no small feat. Estimates suggest that over its entire development cycle, Destiny 1 guzzled a jaw-dropping half a billion dollars. These weren't sums an independent entity like Bungie could front alone, especially post their detachment from Microsoft's vast reserves. Consequently, they formed a symbiotic relationship with gaming behemoth Activision. This union, though marred by criticisms and perceived compromises, was essential. Without Activision's financial support, Destiny's expansive universe might have remained just a blueprint. Bungie's splint from Microsoft was emblematic of their desire for creative independence. However, the road to Destiny was not one they could walk alone. The alliance with Activision wasn't just a financial partnership, but also a leap of faith. Bungie believed in their vision for Destiny, and Activision, seeing the studio's track record and the game's potential, was willing to place a considerable bet on its success. 2013 marked a crisis point for the game. With a narrative that seemed incoherent and disjointed, Bungie had to undertake an extensive overhaul. Crucial plotlines were jettisoned, iconic characters reshaped, and vast dialogues reimagined. The process was a testament to Bungie's commitment to delivering a top-tier experience, albeit it left scars on the development process and required substantial post-launch adjustments. The Fallout was a launch that, while commercially successful, left many players yearning for a more coherent and immersive storyline. And it was commercially successful. Destiny's financial gambit bore fruit almost immediately. Within mere days of its release, the game recouped the massive half-billion-dollar development expenditure. With Destiny, Bungie embarked on a novel approach. Distancing themselves from the traditional single-player narrative-driven model of the Halo series, Destiny was conceptualized as an ever-evolving online universe. This wasn't merely about playing, it was about existing in a living, breathing cosmos that underwent constant metamorphosis. The transition from creating static, single-release titles to designing evolving online ecosystems required not just technological adaptation, but a shift in storytelling, player engagement, and monetization strategies. The pivot to an online-centric model was a boon in multiple dimensions. For one, it facilitated a steady revenue stream for both Bungie and Activision, thanks to regular updates, expansions, and in-game purchases. Bungie's embrace of microtransactions in Destiny's post-launch era was a reflection of broader industry trends and the challenges of funding ongoing content development. Furthermore, it engendered a dynamic dialogue with the player base. Player feedback wasn't just a post-mortem, it was real-time input that could sculpt the game's trajectory. 
However, the very nature of Destiny's design with its evolving content and reliance on player feedback meant the game was perpetually in flux. While the live nature of the game allowed Bungie to adapt and improve based on player feedback and behavior, it also exposed them to immediate scrutiny. The player base was vocal, and Destiny's launch period was filled with a mix of awe for the game's mechanics and vistas, juxtaposed with critiques on its storytelling and content gaps. The flux was nowhere more evident than in the Rise of Iron expansion. Perceiving the constraints of older consoles and acknowledging the dwindling player base on these platforms, Bungie made a strategic decision. They halted updates for the Xbox 360 and PS3 to channel all energies into optimizing Destiny for the Xbox One and PS4. You can imagine the feedback they got for that. EVE Online. Now, here's an MMO unlike any other. While massively multiplayer online games had been enjoying success in various forms, EVE Online stood as a stark departure from the formulaic grind of its contemporaries. Instead of go kill 10 rats, you found yourself deep in political intrigue, territory wars, and economy management that often mirrored real-world complexities. But let's zoom in on an event that underscored Eve's uniqueness and ingenuity, the bloodbath of BR5RB. This was a 21-hour-long PvP encounter involving over 7,000 players, an event sparked entirely by a missed payment on a virtual station, cascading into a full-scale war. But the bloodbath wasn't just an anomaly or a flash in the pan, it was the natural culmination of years of intricate player politics, alliances, and economic systems. The event showcased how EVE Online transcended traditional gaming boundaries becoming a digital stage for human social phenomena. The most fascinating part? The economic repercussions. The destruction of ships and assets in the bloodbath had real-world financial equivalents, placing a numerical value on the collective endeavors and conflicts of its players, an estimated in-game loss equivalent to $330,000 in real-world money. That's not just fascinating from a gaming perspective, it's a moment of anthropology, a study in emergent behaviors facilitated by digital worlds. Bayonetta 2 stood as a testament to how far the industry had come in terms of collaboration and setting aside old rivalries. At the intersection of Platinum Games' expertise in action, Sega's rich history, and Nintendo's adventurous foray into mature themes, Bayonetta 2 was born. Sega and Nintendo, once bitter rivals in the console market now teamed up to co-produce a game. An unthinkable development if you're looking at it through the lens of the 1990s. The very existence of this game was a triumph in diplomacy. This is Nintendo we're talking about, once the epitome of family-friendly gaming, participating in the production of a game featuring a mostly nude gun-toting witch. The teamwork involved was more than just a business transaction, it was a mature recognition by each company that their unique abilities could combine to produce something spectacular. It also spotlighted how far Nintendo was willing to go to diversify its game library, acknowledging the necessity for more mature, complex narratives and themes in an industry that was rapidly outgrowing its youthful past. This becomes especially interesting when you consider that Bayonetta 2 performed only adequately in terms of sales, yet its quality and audacity fortified it as an enduring staple in action gaming. The Wolf Among Us solidified itself as a milestone in episodic storytelling. It was a swan song of sorts for Telltale Games, who were riding high on the success of its episodic story games, especially after The Walking Dead. The Wolf Among Us can be seen as the zenith of the narrative richness that Telltale could achieve, a high point before the series of unfortunate events and mismanagement that led to their decline. The Wolf Among Us provided a multi-layered narrative experience that was indicative of what episodic storytelling could offer, deep character development, morally great choices, and a serialized format that left players eagerly awaiting the next installment. Its art style, dialogue options, and plot structure serve as a case study for effective episodic storytelling, but sadly, this quality level wasn't to be sustained in Telltale's future releases, making this title an artifact of sorts, a monument to a style and an era. 
It's a sobering look back, considering what happened to Telltale, but the game remains a critical touchpoint for narrative design. In an industry saturated with action-packed shooters and sprawling open worlds, this was a game that dared to be intimate, that dared to invest in the power of story. Old School RuneScape's 2013 release is a gripping study in the power of nostalgia and community involvement. This wasn't just a reskin or a minor update, it was a faithful restoration of a game as it existed in 2007. The decision to do this didn't come from the developers out of the blue, it was a democratic process where players voted for the game they wanted. Over 450,000 players cast their votes, effectively reviving the RuneScape they loved. This was more than just a reboot, it was almost like a protest vote against the direction modern MMOs were taking, often loaded with microtransactions and endless uninspired quests. It's an instance of the gaming community essentially saying, this is the game we want to play. And it's not merely a remaster, it replaced RuneScape in the hearts and minds of many players. The phenomenon also demonstrated the power and direction a dedicated fanbase could imprint on a game's development, something we can't overlook when considering the landscape, where player feedback started becoming increasingly integral to a game's life cycle. Then we have Threes, a mobile game that became a sacrificial lamb in the discussion about originality and plagiarism within the gaming industry. This mobile game wasn't just addictive and engaging, it also became the unfortunate victim of the Clone Wars in the mobile space, a sector of the industry that was making a massive amount of money, often at the expense of original ideas. Just a month after Threes was released, 2048 took the scene and took much of the credit. This scenario uncannily mirrored the early 1980s video game market, where cloning was rampant. Remember the influx of breakout clones? It raises questions about intellectual property and the ethics of game design, but Threes was more than just a victim. It became a rallying point for discussions about originality, integrity, and the need for proper crediting in game development. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.